it was just a mind-blowing experience. Like every three days, we would rip apart our old story and tell a new story all over again about the business. And just the thousand ways in which you can tell a story depending upon the audience, the people who are listening and, you know, the stage of the company, your personal journey, how it maps to the story. Why are you the right person to start the company and why not someone else? Like baking in all of that and then speaking from the voice of the customer rather than your own voice. Like all those different aspects like we learned within the last month of Techstars and uh, I still carry that a lot. In fact, I think storytelling is not just a founder skill. It's really a human skill. And we are humans because we are personable and we can relate to other humans. And how we relate to each other is through telling a story. And so I truly, truly believe in the art of storytelling and like whether, you know, you're trying to negotiate a deal, you're trying to hire someone or you're even trying to solve a problem at your home. Like the way that you describe the problem sets the stage of the outcome of the problem itself. So, yeah, that was fun. Welcome back to the Stretch Forward Podcast. Happy to be back with you all after a week hiatus or a few weeks on a hiatus. Been on some traveling stuff, some family stuff, and just some overall business stuff. I mean, this is my part-time job for right now, so I do my best to try to produce these shows each week. This week, we're back with episode 19, and I'm your host, Matt Parker. This week's show, we're featuring Serbi Rathori, the CEO and co-founder of Symbol.ai a machine learning startup that's now based here in San Francisco. I think the company is technically based in Seattle, but Serbi is here, right here in the Valley. Uh, she's originally started the company in Seattle, and she's recently relocated here to the Bay Area, showing how this market is 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 booming, as we would say, as it pertains to the AI revolution. What's interesting about her story is that she started her company prior to this AI revolution. So she got her start in Techstars, Humble Beginnings. She's an immigrant founder. We get into that. She has compelling stories to tell around her immigration and how she was able to come here and stay here. A lot of people forget that just to start a company, a venture-backed startup, is only one of the problems, but you actually have to raise money and show validity to be able to stay here if you're an immigrant. So as a developer in India, she faced challenges with getting set up and getting here and being able to stay here. Now she's here. She's raised over $20 million for her company. And her story is very inspirational for founders who are outside of the U.S. looking to build venture scale businesses. So I'm excited to dive into the realities of AI with more founders like Serbi in the coming weeks, people who've been in the market and who've seen the ups and the downs. So check out more episodes of Stretch War Podcast and stay tuned for more episodes related to enterprise grade AI solutions that are being built. Uh, and also for context, always check out the Substack, stretch4.substack.com slash subscribe. If you're not a subscriber, it's free. We release these weekly episodes and I've also added a Thursday installment to the newsletter, which I'm calling Four Thursdays. And this is where I will be discussing interesting topics that are shaping my mind around being a venture back founder myself. We also released a bonus episode on the health and wellness, right? My health and wellness journey is always changing. Most recently, last week, I tried a 48-hour fast and a water fast that I did. So I brought back on a previous guest on the show, Vidal Nelson, to walk through that 
process and he's a he's a big fasting expert i would say not a medical not any medical advice on the show but we do talk about tactics around fasting and how that can be utilized for health so check that episode out thank you all for listening to the stretch four podcast looking to get back on our week-to-week cadence got some great episodes coming up and some big announcements coming up so thank you all for listening to the stretch four podcast i'm matt parker let's get into the show So welcome to the Stretch 4 Podcast, episode uh, 19. I am here with Serbhi Rathori, uh, and I believe I pronounced that right. I didn't, so. Rathor. You're close. Rathor. Yeah. Rathor. Okay, great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show today, and we're excited to talk on the show. We interview founders and came across your profiling, your journey, and what you're building with Simbi, but... I wanted to start with your business visa journey, right? I'm an African-American, born and raised here in the States, but living in the Bay Area for six years, a lot of my founder friends are immigrants and they're coming to the USA to build the next unicorn. And they're very, very aggressive with it. And and so many of my friends have come and done some phenomenal things in a short amount of time. But what I understand is the visa process to be able to do that, to be able to come here, build a company and be able to stay here is a very, very laborious process. So, Serbi, would you kind of give if if you're an interested founder listening to this show, what are the nuts and bolts of even that process of being able to come here and start a company and continue to be here? Yeah, well, we came. Uh, well, nice to be here. Uh, thanks, for Matt, for having me. Really excited to talk about journey overall and uh, dive a lot into building AI company much before the time and uh, now all the Gen AI work that we are doing. So, yeah, well, we started our journey in 2018. I came here on business visa initially just to validate the product and understand like whether there's interest. Met with a lot of investors, customers, all of that, and then Textures helped us get here. Uh, really uh, with and put us into the process that would result into a more work visa. So uh, when we came uh, to Seattle for Techstars Seattle program, it was more like educational program. So we were still on a business visa where it's allowed to do an educational program. And then after that, we filed for an O-1 visa, which is the extraordinary alien. And that is a visa that you get if you are kind of like you've given grants or you know, you've raised capital, you're going to create IP or you have papers published at your name and stuff like that. So we we filed for that O-1 visa and we got that visa approved. So that is really like the work visa that I am on right now. There is after the O-1 visa, you can file for like an EB-1, which is a path to the green card. And it's much shorter process than for Indians that are coming from H-1B and waiting for like 10, 20 years to uh, get to a green card. So, yeah, that's kind of like how the process was for me. And what what does that process do in driving a fortune function? I feel like it definitely sets you up to have a set amount of time to accomplish a set amount of goals with building yeah. a startup. Obviously, t- startups, you know, you hear the story, they're hard. But, you know, more importantly is I'm assuming they definitely, you know, you have a fortune function to know, like, I have a certain amount of time to meet these thresholds. I don't have yeah. time for bullshit. How do you how did you navigate that? And I feel like it gives you a bit of an advantage yeah. How do you think about that? And how was what was that process like? 
That is such a great question, honestly, because most of the people, most of the times when, you know, people think about visa, it's really associated to the overhead or, you know, oh, you have like this one parallel thread running in your mind always that is about Im immigration. But it does bring, you're right, a forcing function to the execution of the company because you don't have the leverage to stay in the country if the company doesn't work, right? So you have to get it off the ground in a certain period of time, get to the next milestones and the next milestones within those period of time. Because if you don't raise capital or you don't, you know, you're not able to self-sustain yourself, whichever path you take, whether it's raising a venture back company or bootstrapping yourself, you, you can't live in the country anymore if the company doesn't exist. So it does absolutely brings a forcing function and deadlines to validation of your problem statement, acquiring first customers and special specifically like financing, if that is the route that you're going in for sure. And, and are there thresholds that you have to think about? You know, obviously you raise your first round of funding and we can get, and we're going to get into the tech stars experience, but like you raise yeah. your first round of funding. How does that, how does that, uh, that process encompass? Like, it seems like it's an ongoing process where you continually need to check in, continue to validate yourself and yeah. validate the ability to be here and why you're bringing value, which is kind of crazy, right? Because if you can come to the U.S., raise venture capital, build a product, get a customer, you're clearly proven because it's, you know, very hard. But like, what does it look like on a day to day basis when you think about that stuff? And like, how much administration is it to continually track it? Yeah, you won't believe like before Techstars, I remember I pitched into a few angel investors for capital. And what I heard was that well, you are in a catch-22 situation. Like you want to build a company here, you don't have the visa. And to build a company here, you will need a visa. And to get a visa, you will need funding. Mm -hmm. And so how, you know, it's it's a catch-22 sort of a chicken and egg problem. Like, okay, how do we put money in you without knowing that you're actually going to be here? Yeah. And for the long, like that's the answer that I used to get when I used to talk to angel investors, like at least a few that we spoke to. And then we got into Techstars and then the journey was very nice because they work so much with immigrant founders that this whole question is not even in the realm of like a discussion. Like it's so obvious that, yeah, of course you're an immigrant and of course you will get funding and of course you'll have visa after this. That doesn't stop us from working mm -hmm. with you to solve a problem that you're bullish about. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's what you wanted to ask, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was very interesting feedback we got in early days. Yeah. So from the investor perspective, and so jumping into Techstars, you you got here in 2018, you arrived in Seattle. We can talk a bit about unique choice and placement in Seattle, how you ended up there, but you were part of the Techstars Accelerator. And we've talked on this podcast about the Accelerator impact, which Many companies are parts of accelerators, Techstars, Y Combinator. It seems like there's new accelerators every day that are that are coming about. In 2018, what was the process like? What was the programming like? And kind of what was your net performer score of being a participant in the accelerator? Because I think there's on one hand, the accelerator programs are great. They create this network. They create this force and function to go create a product. They create a lot of... Uh, social dynamics of pressure of your batches and how you perform and how you raise money versus your competitors. But there's also a lot of content. These accelerators are businesses themselves. So they're trying to produce content. They're trying to put you in different, uh, you know, you're in their portfolio, but there's thousands and thousands of companies in these portfolios. So what was your experience like? And maybe unpack it from, from day one to like your journey now. 
Yeah, totally. So we started the company 2018. At that time, I was actually in in between like Sydney and India. We were just moving. I'm a resident of Sydney, so that's kind of where we were moving at the time. And then started doing back and forth in the Bay Area for talking to investors and validating the concept with customers. Really moved, really came back here again for Techstars in Feb of 2019. That's kind of when it all started. I think we chose Techstars because they were a very, uh, they they take very small number of companies. So it's not like there are going to be like hundreds of companies in the batch and their focus will be distributed. And I heard like, it's a very different kind of experience when you're like just eight companies and the whole, you know, the accelerator program is obsessing about the eight companies in the batch as opposed to like a hundred or a 60. So we got a lot of attention there, but yeah, three months program, very cool uh, overall, you know, journey first month focused on revalidating the problem, connecting with the right network of mentors and investors that resonate to the problem. So instead of me having to go cold outreach or get an intro to the right people, like they brought the people to us, which I think was the biggest value add in the first month. So there was no time wasted and hey, let's have a coffee together and let's get to the talk after that. It's like, well, you have 20 minutes, like let's ask direct questions and how you can help. Super helpful. Uh, Second month was more around execution of the problem that we figured out and the metrics that we wanted to track to get our idea off the ground. Symbol was a little bit more far further along when we joined Techstar. So we already had a couple of POCs running with enterprise customers. Again, as immigrant founders, like you have to do more than what other companies would do here because you just want to make sure that you don't miss the opportunity to get to the next stage. So like if other companies would, you know, focus on metrics, which is X, we would do like at least two X of that to just make sure that we are in the game with them. So when we got to Techstars, we already had pilots running and others were still validating ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's it has its own pros and cons. Like pros is like you accelerate the company faster. Cons is you don't really get to take the full experience of the program in itself. Like I wish I just had an idea and entered the program. You know, I would have taken a very different approach of doing customer discovery and validation of the problem than I did. At that time, my metrics were more around you know, are we able to implement our technology in these enterprise pilots and make it successful rather than making sure that the TAM or the problem statement is big enough. And I mean, we figured it out eventually, but like we were further along in the program. And then the third month was really around storytelling, which was very, very, like, it was just a mind-blowing experience. Like every three days, we would rip apart our old story and tell a new story all over again about the business. And just the thousand ways in which you can tell a story depending upon the audience the people who are listening and you know the stage of the company your personal journey how it maps to the story why are you the right person to start the company and why not someone else like baking in all of that and then speaking from the voice of the customer rather than your own voice like all those different aspects like we learned within the last month of textures and uh, i still carry that a lot in fact i think storytelling is not just a founder skill it's really a human skill And we are humans because we are personable and we can relate to other humans. And how we relate to each other is through telling a story. And so I truly, truly believe in the art of storytelling and like whether, you know, you're trying to negotiate a deal, you're trying to hire someone or you're even trying to solve a problem at your home. Like the way that you describe the problem sets the stage of the outcome of the problem itself. So, yeah, that was fun. And jumping into that, the storytelling piece, that kind of maybe brings us up to speed today with where we are. We're in a very, very uh, intense 
environment as it relates to artificial intelligence. Every day there's a new yeah. groundbreaking company, there's a new groundbreaking feature or model or product that's being launched by either big tech companies where we have now Google, Apple, Facebook announced that last week they're involved. And obviously the early stage startups that are not necessarily early stage, but are startups like OpenAI and Anthropic. And you were building an AI product in 2018 when things weren't as mainstream <laughs> to say the least at that point. How has your story, your story evolved with the, the press and, and, and how have you built your, you know, how have you used it to leverage, you know, your company's trajectory, I would say, uh, as you, as you think about kind of like being in a, in the time that we're in now? Yeah, I think the story also changes based on the stage of the company. Like in early stages, you really want to resonate to the super innovators in the market that are thinking about doing something disruptive at that time. As you grow the company, you want to start increasing the market size to whom you want to resonate the story and like slowly more and more in terms of security and privacy and maturity and scalability. So yeah, it has definitely evolved. When we started the company, AI in communications was only related to bots. Like the only product sort of experience that was understandable was like a bot experience. And then we kind of like were pushing the idea around passive intelligence, which can be proactive and doesn't have to be reactive in its form. And so there was a different design paradigm and interaction paradigm to it. And then over the years, how that stitched with analytics workflows and how it stitched to existing uh, experiences that people are building with live captioning and how can that be improved. So it was the one takeaway that I have is that it's really about connecting to where your audience is. And sometimes you can tell a great story, but your audience is just not there, you know, to take and to truly internalize that story. So and early stage companies do that a lot. Like, you know, you'll tell like your great vision and like your, you know, you want to see the world changing and like the Jarvis of the future is what we're building. Five years back, people were like, that sounds cool. I don't know if I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> and it also depends upon the metrics that you're rooting for. Like every business is different. Like you could be a business that is rooting more for like just an awareness metric because we are building like deep tech. It will take us five years to build our product and we just want to make this vision, you know, more known with the people versus that, hey, we are an enterprise tech and we do need to start working on enterprises. The use cases might not be as innovative, but we have to figure out like the whole workflow around it or the problems around it to get inside the enterprise so that we are there when we when they're ready to innovate. So it really depends upon your audience, your metrics, the problem you're solving. But I think the more closer you can get to your audience, like the easier it is for them to resonate to the story. Um, and how were you specifically able to do that in the early stages, particularly as it pertains to the enterprise? So when you think about the enterprise, most even, you know, we think about accelerators, you know, YC, Y Combinator, yeah. Techstars, I'm sure is notorious for startups selling to startups, right? You go through a batch, all the people that are involved, or as many of the people that are involved that would use your product, they're your first customers, you add their logos to your website. And it's just this kind of like ongoing dance of, hey, I, you know, I'm selling to my friends and people around me. You took a different approach getting POCs with large enterprise customers. And if you're able to mention them, great. But what was that process around getting those large enterprise customers on board? And as you've continued to evolve, 
how have you been able to continue to do that as your as your company grows to to, to yeah. serve? Honestly, you know, we were a little naive at that time. We didn't know about this whole thing of startups selling to startups. Like I would have done that too when we started Symbol and got into Techstars. So we just didn't know that that's a possibility. And we just like, we're like, okay, we have to figure out a way to sell to big customers. And we came from enterprise. So we worked at Amdocs before this. And so all I knew was like going through the right channels and talking to the right people to sell into. And as an engineer, you know, selling your perception or your thought process about selling is different from maybe salespeople, right? So as an engineer, you want like more logical sales process that, okay, you believe in the idea, you have a problem, you want to sell it, and only then you're a customer. And it kind of sometimes adds to your favor. So no, it was all cold, actually. I didn't even know the people who were our early customers. I just reached out to them on LinkedIn, traditional, very traditional ways of what Textiles taught us, like, you know, figure out your ICP, identify the pain point, do customer discovery, understand if the pain is high and the urgency is high and there's budget. And if yes, go and sell very basic fundamentals of business building, like, like really what every mm-hmm. business should be doing. You know, we just followed that. And that's how we got our early customers. And, and getting into that, I think sometimes that's taboo for a lot of founders, particularly from engineering backgrounds. You got to actually go out and sell you were using, I mean, typically the harder way to sell is coal, but that worked for you. What were some tactics that you used in those early days? As far as obviously you mentioned LinkedIn, uh, how were you positioning yourself at that point? Was it positioning as a conversation or was it positioning as an actual problem solving solution? And maybe it was both, but maybe walk us through yeah. how that looked on the day to day. I was very direct in my communication. It was really like, I knew that not everyone will understand the problem we are solving. Like our first product, our first solution that we were providing as an API was that we'll hook up to your real-time audio that is being generated on a video platform, like the one that we are talking on right now. And then Symbol will connect to this through an SDK, will stream the data in real time and generate action items and questions and follow-ups and of course, transcription. And if we had to resonate to a higher audience, we would have taken the other route and said, we're a transcription company and, you know, like work with us and get add live transcription. But we didn't. We wanted to accelerate our journey to where we are now today, which is large language model for conversations. And we couldn't have done that if we pitched transcription to start with. Mm -hmm. So we started by talking about automated meeting notes, use AI for automatically generating meeting notes in your platform. We have an API that can enable you to do that. And we still do that, honestly. (laughs) It hasn't changed much. And then you can integrate that seamlessly in your platform. And if you want a demo, I'm happy to do that. And that's how I reached out to a lot of product leaders uh, because I knew that there are some, you know, visionaries, product leaders that are thinking about like really differentiating and adding that future magic quadrant of Gartner as part of their, you know, product. And uh, they were, some of them resonated really well and we got into POCs with them and it was very straightforward. It was very direct. And and so unpacking that, two other questions to follow up. What was the volume cadence that you needed to do in an outreach campaign to get to maybe your first POC? And then in that POC, you know, it's 2018, what was the security vendor procurement process like and how did you navigate that being an early stage company? 
Yeah, we actually, so it was not about volume. When we started, when I started reaching out, it was really about quality of people that I'm talking to. So I would get really high conversions because I wasn't using any tool in the beginning. It was really just LinkedIn, like keeping track of the people that I'm supposed to talk to. A very basic Excel sheet and like all that rudimentary stuff. Eventually, when I saw that, okay, the messaging is resonating, like I know what, if I'm writing X, they are getting excited about it. They want to talk. Then I started using reply.io. I know it was like their early days too. And uh, it's like been my favorite tool ever since. And with them, I really, it's so funny, you know, sometimes like these companies don't realize how much value they add through like a great customer success motion. So when I was using reply, like I remember I was talking to their customer success manager and she almost ended up like teaching me the, you know, the outbound sequences that you can do. And like, you know, this usually works and this doesn't work. And, you know, try to do a five sequence because I was all learning at that time. But think about it, like who better to learn from than a CSM of an outbound email campaign, right? Like the real practical person who's actually doing it across thousands of customers. And then she really taught me about what works, what not works. And put a seven day break or a four day break and send it on these days and not on those days, like the nitty gritty things. And I was totally geeking out on it because it was amazing. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. Like I'm figuring out a logical way to break this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, that was fun. That's pretty insightful. Uh, shout out to reply.io. And as you kind of matriculated from the customer side, I know you have some interesting stories about fundraising and how you were able to do that. Was it similar in the approach or was it quite different? Because I feel like a lot of times founders are, you know, you're, you're spread thin already, but yeah. you know, you're, you, you have seasonality around fundraising and sales cycles, quite honestly. I mean, obviously you can always be selling, but we know that fundraising windows are, you know, pretty fixed. VCs are actively taking pitches during certain months. They're on vacation in certain other months. The other months is kind of holidays. So how did you curate around that? And I'm assuming Techstars had a big play in that, but like, how did you design your fundraising campaigns and what were the differentiations between that and your sales campaigns? They did. I've really understood and valued the power of network now. That's the one thing that I've learned really well, like how to surround yourself with people who will do the connections for you. Because I think founders waste the majority of the time in finding out intro paths and reaching out to, you know, VCs, oh, they have invested in this company, I should talk to their founder. Can I get an intro from the founder to the VC? Because that's always more credible. You know, if a found if an existing portfolio company introduces you, like that's the most credible part that you will get to, or if a customer introduces you. But figuring that process out is always like the most time consuming operational part of the whole fundraising process. So Eventually, over the period of time, I figured out a way to like surround myself by people who can make intros. So they don't have to be VCs. They have to be like really strong networked angels, as well as like leaders or I would say experts that venture capital firms usually use for due diligence. So you can reach out to those kind of people there. They usually have like on their LinkedIn advisor or like an investor or like a scout or like a venture partner for like these companies and then connect with them. And as you connect with one person, I think they'll introduce you to two more people in the same network. And you just like, they also give really good feedback because they are hearing feedback on technology, on product from a lens of investment, as opposed to like, you know, other things that you're already figuring out. So it's a good additional data point for you to run as a business. 
And then, yeah, I eventually got some advisors from there on board to surround us, and they've been very helpful mm-hmm. ever since. So Techstars made a lot of early intros, and eventually, you know, we created a network around us that will help and support within that. And every fundraise I do, I definitely add some, you know, new angels to the round because angel investors can be really powerful for sure. And how many rounds now have you done since 2018? So I'm assuming you did the pre-seed, which yeah. for you, it was in a position where, hey, I have to raise money to be able to, to keep my visa and stay here. So that was like a necessity. How has fundraising evolved for you and the company? And obviously, you know, you can talk a bit about how the, the, the current AI environment has impacted that now or not. Maybe you, you know, maybe you have some insights there, but would love to know how the fundraising journey has yeah. evolved over time. We had two revolutions as part of our company life cycle. We started in 2018, went to Techstars 2019, raised a pre-seed round in 2019 after Techstars, and then COVID happened in 2020, right at the time when we were about to launch our platform. That was very interesting because our hypothesis of increase in digital communications just accelerated 10x. And now digital communications became so critical to every software experience that you had to add a voice, video, text, or email in your platform. Otherwise, how else are you going to monitor the team or do onboarding or connect to your customer? Like all of that, digital became so important. That enabled a flood of new form of data, which was now accessible because that was our biggest problem, like starting that, okay, there's only a percentage of companies that are adding like voice and video into their experiences. And a lot of the meetings are still in person. How are we going to tackle this in-person problem? And after 2020, that wasn't a problem anymore. So that was one. Then in 2020, we raised our seed round towards the end. And Alexa Fund also invested in us in the same year, right after COVID. That gave a little boost to the company after. And then we and that, that we also saw like early signs of our developer platform scaling up and getting good signals and the type of companies that were signing up. 2021, we raised our Series A at the end of 2021, really. And that's when we started working with more enterprise customers through the platform and just saw a massive growth in the platform adoption all the way from like summarization that we launched in 2021. Like, believe it or not, it was like our first generative model back then. That was September, 2021, much before ChatGPT. We talked about it as abstractive summarization and people, some people understood it, but it wasn't like as general as Now you talk about summary and people exactly know what you're talking about. You know, they don't refer it to as extractive summarization anymore. So that was really cool. So when ChatGPT happened, like we were already, we already had a summarization API. We had an API that was doing summarizing like smaller parts of the conversations based on timestamps that we call bookmarks. And so because the awareness increased like massively and our product was there, it gave us a big push again. So we had like two big pushes for the company during this life cycle. And uh, all of that eventually led to us building like our large language model, which was, uh, you know, the game plan forever. Post, we did our summarization launch in 2021. And yeah, with Nebula that we just announced last week, we're really excited to now unlock uh, new use cases where conversations are like the center or communications are at the center. So that's our Nebula is our generative AI large language model. It already powers some of the APIs and Symbol. It is now available in an on-prem version, which with a smaller model that enterprises can deploy very securely in form of their cloud offerings and support very predictable summarization related workloads. 
and uh, short summary, long summary, bullet point summary, summary by topics, like all of that stuff. And then now that same, the larger model version of that, which is capable to do a higher variance of task and just have more powerful in reasoning and complexity of the task itself, that is now available in private beta. So we have, it's just been seven days and I'm so grateful to the response that we've had and the way that people understand the value of a domain specific language model that can really understand the nuances of how people talk as opposed to like a general large language model. And that is really amazing. So, yeah. Um, And this is the Nebula LLM launched. Yeah, Um, yeah, that's right. You have a discussion or you just had a discussion demos. Today we had. Today, okay, awesome. And and what has it been resonating with with folks that have already been in conversation with net new customers? What has been the trajectory? Totally. Uh, we're just giving, we just gave access this week to a bunch of new companies. So we're, you know, meeting with them this week, getting feedback. Definitely. I think there are, there's good feedback around like, oh, there's less, um, there's more predictability to an outcome. It seems like it's more relevant, the outcomes of the questions that I'm asking in conversations, because not general lang- large language models unless like you're using GPT-4 and fine tuning it, which is really expensive, mm-hmm. but like other large language model, it's hard to, you know, fine tune it to how people speak and the nuances of that. So yeah, at least the early feedback has been really good and we are, and it's already a part of our API. So we've already been getting feedback on specific use cases of it for like over two years now and it's been evolving. So it, it's, it's been fun. Yeah. And of course we are continuing to increase and update, create newer versions of it to increase the power of the kind of task that it is able to do. But we've exposed this model directly as a model API, and then there is a playground for it. And I think that's That's great. We'll definitely make sure we link that new launch uh, in the uh, show notes. To finish out the interview today, Serbi, I want to ask a few questions around more of the lifestyle of being a founder, right? I think a lot of times we get caught up in the taboo of the grind, the product building, the company building, the fundraising. But we think about like the lifestyle, you know, you're a high performer, obviously from, you know, from the beginning, you had to kind of be a high performer and you were on the self timeline. How have you been able to maintain kind of your, your mindfulness of everything that's going on? Obviously you've been through the pandemic. We've been through boom and bust cycles in, in the startup fundraising environment, managing, growing a team. I mean, obviously selling to large enterprise customers, you, you probably need therapy just to go through those sales cycles, but how do you, how do you stay on top of, of your game and stay sharp to be able to you know perform at a high level? Well, we've been fortunate to work with great partners like our security and InfoSec cycles haven't been that crazy just because we've had the foundations of privacy from the very start of mm-hmm. the company. We have a CISO on board, we're SOC to type two, like all of that stuff. So we've done some stuff to avoid that madness. But on the mindfulness, you know, that is such a tough question. I can answer you every single question that you have. But mm-hmm. if you start asking me about what do I do apart from work, I am blind. Like I'm speechless and I... I don't know really. No, I'm a big people person. I love spending my time with people, whether it's like in the company or outside the company. I love helping other founders and brainstorming their business use cases with them. I actually do a lot of founder Fridays for my own self. Like I'll speak to two founders every Friday and just kind of like give my thoughts on their business. So it feels like you're doing more than uh, just running your company. And uh, then I love making new friends. You know, I'm born and brought up in a in like in a situation where my dad was in the armed forces and we traveled every two years and we made a ton of friends in every state of the country. 
So I'm very fond of doing that. And so, yeah, I try to meet like new people and hang out with them, explore cities, mm -hmm. watch Netflix, go to a nice place, eat some food. I'm a big foodie, drink okay. some wine. Yeah, all the things that normal people do, really. <laughs> There's nothing special. <laughs> nothing special. And how are you liking the transition from, you, you, you mentioned that you offline, that you moved down from Seattle to the Bay Area. Yeah. What drove that and how are you liking living in this place called San Francisco um, in the past, you know, since you... Since you've yeah. been here. You know, I love Seattle. It's been such a home to me when I moved to the U.S. And I was in San Jose before for a year and then we moved to Seattle. And then now we've grown the company majority in Seattle and now a few people in the Bay Area. But I was just done with the winters, honestly. <laughs> like I tried for years. It did not grow on me the winter time. Mm -hmm. So I love spending my summers there, but uh, for the rest of the year, Bay is good. And I think that just the number of conversations that you have in the Bay Area with other AI companies, customers, investors, they're just magnitude, you know, bigger. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's its a great opportunity to be in the center of the, you know, the ecosystem and kind of be around people that are building companies that are really pushing the boundaries on how AI is going to be adopted at enterprise, at scale, with secure, explainability, all of that stuff. So, yeah, its it's been good so far. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. I'd like to leave you with any opportunity here to have your last parting words. Where should our listener audience find you if they want to find out more about about the company, about you as a as a maybe get in with one of your you know founder Friday conversations? Where should they reach out to you and how should they how should they go about it? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to me, Surbi Rator, symbol.ai. And uh, we just, uh, like I said, we announced Nebula last week. So if you guys are looking to play around with it, sign up for private beta. We are giving access on a rolling basis to companies and individual researchers. So yeah, that's all. But yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Surbi, for coming on the Stretch 4 podcast. I'm your host, Matt Parker. That's all for today's show. We'll see you all next week.